Welcome to the Sip and Savor podcast, where I spotlight Houston's best food, fine restaurants, and top culinary names. I'm your host, Mega McSwain. Houston has long been a sought-after destination for chefs to open new restaurants. There's so much space in Houston. Things are so much more affordable in Texas. There are no harsh winters down south. You hear these things time and time again. So it's no surprise that when chefs or restaurateurs are making the decision to choose where to open a restaurant, a business that is quite possibly the hardest to start and maintain, Houston is a city that is often in the running for out-of-towners. One such chef, Travis McShane, is a native Houstonian. He grew up in Kingwood, a small suburb north of the city, graduated from the University of Texas, attended the Culinary Institute of America, and then went on to work for the legendary chef Jonathan Waxman at Barbudo in New York City and Adele's in Nashville. If you have not heard of Barbudo, it was really an institution in New York. It was a stomping ground for celebrities, and it became famous for, among other things, Chef Jonathan Waxman's roast chicken with salsa verde. Travis McShane served as a line cook at Barbudo, working his way up to executive chef, and eventually became Waxman's corporate chef, responsible for all of his culinary operations and menus in New York City, San Francisco, Nashville, and Atlanta. After gaining years of wonderful hospitality experience, Travis, wanting to start a restaurant of his own and begin a family with his wife, opted to move back home to Houston, and he opened Ostia in 2020, right smack dab in the middle of a pandemic. Despite the many unexpected challenges in its first year, Ostia has garnered a lot of popularity from Houstonians. The restaurant features an open kitchen with a custom stone deck oven and grill, resulting in some really amazing pizzas. Travis draws inspiration from his travels and culinary experiences. And while you will see a hefty focus on Italian food with plenty of great pastas on the menu, Ostia is truly more globally influenced and driven by the bounty of the seasons. Though it is a neighborhood gem hidden in plain sight at a cross-section of residential streets in Montrose, it has become a destination for foodies all across the city, in part because of its talented chef and his take on the roast chicken, a dish he often prepared and perfected while working at Barbudo. Join me as I sit down for a chat with Chef Travis McShane at Ostia. paint a picture for our listeners just before we even get into this because I feel like Ostia is such a beautiful restaurant. And what does it mean? What so does the, the yeah, name mean? So the, it really means a, a bunch of things. To us, it's a name in the day. It's so uh, the original port town of Rome is Ostia de Antico. It's a little beach town. Um, we saw, you know, parallelisms with Houston being the original port town of Houston, right. kind of, or Texas and 
those type of things. It also kind of translates to host, um, but it's really more in the sense of like the wafer, the you know the uh, the body of Christ, whatever. By no means is it <laughs> that for us. To us, it's 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 a name. It's um, you know we we had a long list. We were naming our, our baby and our restaurant at the same time. Oh, you were? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. And uh, well, we I thought. My wife had already picked out the babies. <laughs> well, that's how that goes. She let me kind of play the game of <laughs> having choices. And then we got close to the end. She's like, the same name, Margo, kept on getting to there. It's like, I have a feeling this has been chosen Aww. for a while. <laughs> uh, but it was, you know, it was, it, you know, we had this long list and uh, I kept on picking names and we had names for the building sets that they we filed for the city for permits and stuff. And then everyone I hated. Every single time I look at it for a couple of weeks, I hate that name, I hate that name. And so I was talking to my mentor, Jonathan Waxman. And I was like, listen, I, I just, hardest thing I'm having right now is coming up with a name for the restaurant. Because I want it phonetical, I want it easy, I want it brandable, I want it, you know, just something that becomes a little bit iconic. And he's like, stop. He's like, it's a name. Just pick one and move on. Um, and so we kind of did that. We didn't quite go that far. My wife and I worked on a bunch of kind of, rough marketing looks and we just ended up with you know finally had to pick a name really we liked the way it looked we, we could imagine the steel cutout sign which is the one that's hanging on our indiana side my wife doodled that up oh wow and when we did that like that looks like a cool brand well, I, don't like I think it is a good name I, personally i like one word name mm -hmm. restaurants you know when they have those long like drawn out half yeah. sentence names i just think they're kind of obnoxious but um, I love the name. I do love the meaning as far as you mentioned it being host. And yeah. I want to paint a picture for our listeners because it is such a unique restaurant in the sense that there's different dining areas, really. Yeah. When you come in here, you can dine in a variety of different places. So right now we're taping in, is this the green room? We call this the greenhouse room. The greenhouse. So for people that have never been here and never seen it, the reason why we call it that is that we have these two massive sliding glass doors open. I guess like 85, 90% of the way. And then we have the, probably one of the biggest skylights that you'll see in a, yeah, it's a, really, a restaurant. Really bright area. Yeah, and so it's super bright. The idea originally was this room was on hold this entire patio. And uh, it was gonna go all the way. And it was gonna give us an opportunity to have a, a patio feel in August in Houston without putting people outside. Yes. It has um, the AC. It has the AC. Yeah. The doors open. We still pump the AC. It has its own dedicated AC. So even the doors are open, we're running air to kind of keep it a few degrees cooler in here. But, you know. See, that's what Houston people want. They want to be on the yeah. patio, but they don't want to melt in the sun. But, you know, the, the thing is, is that you have to have so many parking spots in Houston per square foot. And so we we did all of our due diligence and we we rented some parking spaces and we were still at five parking spots shy of having that all. Right. And because I want to share that you're right here, like in the middle of Montrose, yeah. kind of really on a residential street, sort of. Yeah. So this is like, we're technically, this building was opted out of an old HOA. That's the only reason why this restaurant basically can be here is that back in, I think it was like uh, the sixties or something like that, whoever owned this building opted out of the HOA of Hyde Park that was started. Right. And so, yeah, we're like sandwiched right in the neighborhood, um, right on Delavey. But you know, it, we were a couple spots short, so we had, we they don't count outdoor patio against your parking count, and so we added the outdoor patio and made it bigger. But it ended up being you know a blessing in disguise with COVID. 
uh, we were able to sit that, you know. Right, a lot of people probably requested. the first year that we were open, people want to sit out there. And I think Houstonians kind of really adapted to dining and weather. Whether it's 40 <laughs> yes. degrees and people out there in parkas or, you know, right now it's, you know, 100 degrees and still people are still very cautious with, you know, the variants and whatnot that people will still sit out there in nice linen shorts and T-shirts and have a good time, so. So you talked about Houstonians. Let's let's talk about that. What inspired you to open a restaurant? This is your first restaurant yeah, in Houston. Is, yeah. So my wife and I both grew up in Houston. And you're from Kingwood, right? Yeah. So we both went to Kingwood High School uh, a couple of years apart. We both went to the University of Texas. And, uh, you know, she went her way out west to L.A. And I was out east in New York. And, uh, you know, we lived in New York together. We lived in Brooklyn. Uh, we lived in Nashville, and when we decided it was time to do our own restaurant, we kind of played with those places. We both lived in Austin, so we found Austin, Brooklyn, uh, they really consider Manhattan. Uh, I was trying to convince her to move back out west, maybe to California, because I had this idealistic image of, you know, the food scene is there, but that's not a reality. <laughs> it's just too hard. Wait, is your wife in the, is, is she in the food world? Is she a chef or a No, she, uh, she worked through the restaurant industry, uh, you know, all through post-college. So she's like, she was working, has hospitality you know, experience. Has experience. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we were looking around, kind of kicking around the idea. We wanted to start a family and a business. And uh, us being both from Houston, we kept on throwing out, okay, maybe Nashville, maybe Austin, maybe and the common denominator kept on coming up is like, well, we're not getting the one thing that we've always wanted, which is being close to friends and family taken care of. And so we uh, honestly, it was post Harvey. Both of our parents were flooded in Harvey. Uh, we were coming back and forth, kind of helping out, cleaning and doing those sort of things. And her parents' house was still under a lot of construction. That Christmas helped Harvey. So we rented a house. And Montrose. And yeah, I was going to ask, did you know about Montrose? Were you familiar I'm with the neighborhood? I'm familiar with it because uh, my, my brother and my sister had uh, My sister had moved back from New York. She was living there most of the time I was. She had moved back to Houston. My brother was in Houston. My parents were still here. Tons of my friends. I was familiar with it. But right. not, you know, everybody's like, oh, you would love Montrose. It's walkable. It reminds you of being in all these major cities and stuff. I was like, uh huh. And so we rented a house in Montrose, kind of between Montrose and the Zen district. Mm -hmm. And we walked bars, we walked to restaurants. We're like, this is not, you know, we grew up in Kingwood. Right. So, and, and then we, you know, we graduated in the early 2000s. So like downtown was still not what it is now. Right. And so we would come into town to go for basketball games or whatever it was. So it, like you, it was an eye, it was, yeah, it was an eye opening things like, you know, this is pretty cool. And there's some pretty cool funky buildings and some really cool food scene stuff. So we really kind of put us back on the radar doing Houston. And, uh, you know, eventually we realized that, you know, you start putting, you know, look at your business plan and who your clientele is and who you want to have there and stuff. And Houston is such an obvious mix of, well, the clientele is pretty much everybody. Yeah, it and, really is. And, it, and so you're not you're not fighting for one demographic or one 
uh, neighborhood. People go everywhere and do everything. Right, because just because you're in Montrose, people who live in the Heights yeah. come here. It's people not Heights, uh, from Briar Grove Memorial, down yeah. to Lestie, the Sugar Land. We get people all the time driving in from Kingwood because mm. they hear it's like Kingwood owned. <laughs> <laughs> That's and I've never met these people before. And they're they're awesome, and they come in like, yeah, we'll come here to support you because you're from Kingwood. See, that's what you get in Houston. That you warm, get that in Houston. Yeah, that and, warmness, that love. And that's the thing about Houston. I think it, it really embodies the southern thing, the hospitality sure. the most, where it's like people are genuine. They don't like you. You'll know they don't like you. <laughs> but if they like you, you know for a fact they actually. It's not. It's not fake. Right. And, there's nothing fake about Houston. And so all those factors combined and, you know, it's the number one dining out city in the country. It's all these like things that, you know, made sense for a restaurant and the support network of having friends and family that, you know, starting a family and a business at the same time, you kind of need. Right. So it just more and more started weeding out the other ideas. And this was before, I mean, it was, this was before COVID, oh, right? You didn't even know that COVID. was coming. Yeah, this was, so we moved down here in 2018 uh, with the sole purpose of trying to find a space. Wheels were in motion, right? Wheels were in motion. I had, I knew the concept roughly in my head of what I wanted to do for the first restaurant, uh, something familiar to me with my personality on it. Uh, but we didn't have a space, you know, anything. We moved down here and, our job was driving around Houston trying to find places. So Which we, can take some time. It's pretty spread it, out. It is. It, you know, coincidentally enough, we were looking for a home at the same time. Okay. So we were between Montrose and the Heights, where we wanted to live. And so we were driving around this neighborhood looking for a house or an apartment or something. And we were driving down Dunleavy and we, I put on the brakes in the left lane of Dunleavy and like pretty much stopped at Dunleavy in Indiana pointed at this warehouse. And I was like, I think that could be a cool restaurant. Well, this is like the jackpot of locations. I mean, I have to say, it's right in the middle of Montrose. It's right on Dunlake. You get a ton of traffic, mm -hmm. and you built this restaurant that's really visually striking. So people who are just driving by, are like, what's that? Yeah, you know. And the, the you know, biggest knock we get on, we I wanted a really small sign. Yeah, I, I just I didn't I didn't I was I'm tired of seeing these giant giant neon lights. flashing it's lights. Like, dying they're here. cool. There's some really beautiful ones like that, but it's like you know. When you're in uh, Europe or even in LA or sometimes in New York, but really like Europe, you're trying to find a restaurant. Right. It's hard to find it sometimes. And you realize that they have a little like six by six plaque. That says yeah. the restaurant name <laughs> on. It was something, I just said something really cool about that. And like, oh, this would be a little bit bigger. So, you know, at the beginning, I was like, you need a bigger sign. So I was like, you know what? Eventually they'll figure out they'll, this yeah, is they'll it find and it. they'll find it. But uh, no, it was just a cool location and it, uh, it took a lot of behind the scenes logistics to work out parking because it's the hardest thing. But once we were able to figure that out, it went from the back burner location to like, no, we got to make this one. Yeah. So. Well, you know, you were talking earlier about you knew exactly what you wanted for the restaurant. What was your vision? Then? So, I mean, it'd it be I for me to say that like my food is, a, is superly influenced by my mentor, Jonathan Waxman. And most of my time for him, I spent at Barbudo, which was this iconic restaurant in the West Village. It's about to reopen, a new location, but it was, uh, there's a lot of ways to describe it. But to me, it was, what it was is that he, he always harped about ripping away the pretense that is a restaurant and getting back to what truly what a restaurant should be, which should be a place that you kind of restore yourself and come in, have a good time and not be worried about what type of glassware your wine goes into and 
that each cocktail has its own glass and, and you know, we have 17 different types of plates for each dish. You know, it's two or three plates, a couple glassware. Take those things away and play some good music, relax, have a good time. But the food being simple, um, ingredient driven, and not overly manipulated is really kind of the principle of which he, you know, kind of taught me. So it was, it was kind of, you know, stylistically in the same wheelhouse as that at Barbudo, but with, you know, a little bit more of my wife and I's personality on the build out, um, you know, taking away the idea that it's only Italian restaurant. When people always call us an Italian restaurant, I don't argue with them. You know, the main reason why we call it Italian restaurants because for the two years leading into it, people were like, what type of food is it? What type of food is it? Right. And I had a really hard time explaining, well, it's my food. It's, uh, you know, it's influenced by a bunch of different things. When you say your food, is well, it kind of things that you have created over the years or well, things you've learned? Both. It's, it's a little bit of both, but a lot of it's just the idea that it's not handcuffed to being Italian. It's, you know, right now we have uh, Rigatonia Machiciana on the menu, which is a classic Roman pasta. But then next to it, we have, you know, uh, things that are like hamachi with uh, sasamachi. And so, like, it's, it, 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 it's, I wouldn't call it fusion by any stretch, but like, I would call it, you know, it, to me, it has more of that California feel in the sense of just not really being stuck in one category. And would you say that, I mean, people have coined this as a farm to table restaurant. Yeah. So, would you say that the menu is driven by what you are getting here or what you know you can get in Texas? Yeah, absolutely. So, we, we don't typically write menu items before we get. Product. It's the goal. The goal is that we we look to see what we can get and then we create something off of that versus saying, I want to do this dish and then let's call a bunch of people and see who we can. Right. Now, but if we know it's something that, that does grow here and should be coming up, that's one thing. But it's, it's definitely what can we get from the farmers? What can we get from the local seafood markets? But then guys? do you change the menu very often or how often does it? To the point where I sometimes drives my staff insane. <laughs> I was gonna say that seems like it would change a lot. It, it changes a lot. So we print, we print every day. At, uh, I say four o'clock. My GM will start saying two thirty because she's constantly hounding us for a menu, mm -hmm. and it's kind of a long going joke that we just laugh. But not ready yet. Not ready yet. <laughs> we're tweaking. We're changing. We're and it's it's when we're tired of seeing something. It's when we can't eat something. It's. You know, to us, if we're tired of prepping it and tired of cooking it, a lot of times that means that our guests that come here all the time might be tired of seeing it. Sure. They might want to try something different. So the principle is that we have, in each category, a few items that are kind of staples. that are always on the menu. They don't really change, but, you know, sometimes in, this, like in the wintertime, we might add some chicory, some busies, or salad. Sure. Something like that when we can get them and they're nice. But for the most part, it's, you know, the Caesar salad's always there, the potatoes, chicken, Adnyoki of sorts. Uh, we always have carbonara and stuff like that off the menu. But uh, the rest of it is kind of fair game to change. So if you come in and something's not singing to you, there's a couple of staples you can go to. But yeah, it changes quite a bit. Have you gotten so, any like angry Houstonians saying, you took this off the menu? Because I know that happens a lot. More in jest. Uh, and, you know, we just tell them, don't worry. Everything is in the cycle. Everything <laughs> makes, like we, took the, okay. we did a cauliflower salad at the beginning and we took it off for a few months just to get some other shaved vegetable salads on there. Cause you know, when 
carrots and asparagus is delicious. We do a raw salad of that. And then when we brought it back, everybody was all excited. And, you know, it's fun to get them excited and it's fun to take it away from them. <laughs> <laughs> that is fun. So, you know, you mentioned uh, living and working in New York with mm -hmm. Jonathan Waxman, Waxman, of course, such a talented chef. But being in New York, uh, you and your wife both obviously in the industry and probably very connected with people there. Were there other chefs or restaurateurs that really inspired you that kind of left a lasting impression? Um, that's a good question. I mean, yes, a lot of them did come from the guys I hung out with a lot all came. A lot of them came from the Jonathan Waxman tree. So there's guys like Justin Smiley at Upland and now back at El Buca Alimentari, who I think is probably one of the best talents in the country, hands down. And, you know, things that he does, you just like look at it and go, that's so smart. Mm -hmm. You know, you would see him at the market. We'd see these guys at the market and then they, they would buy the exact same things. We all had the same giant blue bags carrying at uh, Union Square Market and then we'd all go back to places and then go eat at each other's restaurants. Like, oh, that's what you're doing. That's cool. And that's very cool. So it, it is cool because you'd see the same things go everywhere. Yeah. It would treat them differently. Um, you know, one of my closest friends in the world, a guy named Jake, uh, Jake Lieber, he has a place called Shea My Taunt. And uh, I guess it's a technically Greenpoint. So just kind of South Greenpoint to North Williamsburg. And uh, they crack it out. And, you know, he's more a contemporary, but he's somebody I look up to because his style and his, the way he cooks is totally, we come from the same end. We grew up at Barbuda together, but their approaches are totally different. So it's, there was a ton of people that in New York that you kind of just look around and kind of see, oh, that's a cool way to handle that fish or handle that fish, or sorry, fish, uh, vegetable, steak, or whatever it is. So. so with that being said, do you feel like, I'm sure just coming to Houston throughout the years, you had read about different chefs here. And yeah. of course now I'm sure you're meeting so many of them, but were there any ones that really were intrigued by or starting to think like, Hey, that person's doing some cool shit. Um, yeah. I mean, Justin Wu, obviously, um, I knew Aaron was coming to Houston at the same time as me. We actually never knew each other in New York. But I knew of them. Are you talking about Aaron? Blue Dorn. Blue Dorn. And, and I, you know, his mentor, my mentor, closest friends. And so I knew his talent was coming and, I was excited about that. But it's also going back to like people like Robert Grande, who right. he's been paving the way in Houston for years. Uh, uh, Chris Shepard, obviously. Um, and, you know, I'm saddened that we moved here right as COVID started, more or less, because my wife and I really didn't get a great opportunity before the restaurant opened to eat at a lot of small places. Right. You know, like. Right. Uh, going into the small neighborhoods and eating all the Vietnamese food and the Thai food, uh, Cantonese food and stuff like right. that. Kind of, we missed yeah. that because of COVID. And I'm hoping that once, you know, our child gets a little bit older and everything calms down, right. we can get her in more daycare. We, might, we can start doing that again because there's so many, there's so much, so many names that don't get the re national recognition. Right. And there's so many neighborhoods phenomenal. besides the main, like the Heights and the yeah. know, Garden Oaks. All, besides that, there's like these outskirts. Even if you go out to the suburbs, there's some really good restaurants, yeah. you know? So, you know, you mentioned, of course, opening a restaurant during COVID, I mean, beyond challenging. Yeah. But have you noticed anything about the Houston culinary scene being challenging or maybe different than you expected? Is it unpredictable? Uh, for the most part, we can get most of the things that we want. There's some things that we still, this market doesn't quite have. Like, we import all of our... So, a little quick tangent. We do 
basically every type of pasta. We do fresh, dry, extruded. We do it all. And so different dishes need different types of pasta. So like our dried pasta, we have a hard time finding dried pasta in Houston that we think is to our standards. So we import it from a company called Bonitalia in New York City, who is the importer. And so there's a few items like that, but it's not that challenging to stay because I mean, I know a lot of barbecue places that buy all of their salt and pepper from Amazon. Right. Because it's just easier to do it online. Right. You can get so that, you it's need. really not that challenging. Uh, you know, the hardest thing I think about compared to New York is that in New York, your dinner service starts at 5, 5.30, and you get your last eating at night. Oh, wow. So it's really challenging physically, but you have, so you do these big numbers of revenue and covers, which revenue is the only thing that really matters when it comes to like true the heart of the business. But chefs like to brag about the covers to each other more than anything else. <laughs> how, many so? how many covers do you guys do now? Right, cool, cool. And we, uh, we did that many too. They, they always lie. They always <laughs> inflate it by like 20% every single time. So someone tells you to do the covers. Okay, now probably, I know. They I'm probably do like 260 to 270. Okay. That's, that's the truth of the matter. Um, but it's hard to get that that volume in between because Houstonians like to eat between seven and nine o'clock. And so kind of going circling back to this space, it was a little bit bigger of a restaurant than I wanted to have. Probably 15 to 20% bigger than seat-wise than I wanted to have. But in retrospect, it's probably the best because we can get more people down at that time uh, to, to kind of it, you know, the, the revenue that you need to do fun things, to stay in business and right. stuff like that. So it, that, that is a little bit of a challenge, um, you know, trying to drive that early dinner business. Um, and then you, the other thing you lose out on and versus in New York is people drink a lot at lunch in New York. Okay. So you sell a lot of bottles of wine, you sell a lot of cocktails at lunch, whereas the first year or so of being open, we did sell a lot of lunch because everybody was working from home. Right. And so I guess everybody felt they could drink and go back home and nobody would know. But <laughs> I've noticed that as people are back in offices, it's been switching more to iced teas, um, which, right. you know, that's your market. And it, it, it totally makes sense. You know, New Yorkers, you know, that's what they do. Well, so. you know, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I obviously go out to eat a lot. And I have seen restaurants that will do lunch. They'll do a Friday lunch mm -hmm. and they won't do it Monday through Thursday yeah. because maybe that reason. They know people will maybe duck out on a Friday and have yeah. a, like, you know, long lunch and boozy lunch. And so we're we're trying to go the opposite direction with Ostia. We are currently closed on Tuesday and Wednesdays for lunches, but our goal is to open every day for lunch. To me, it's, you know, you're here now. We're not open for lunch. If you look inside the prep kitchen, there's people here working. Right. There's people here from eight o'clock on. And so for us to fire up a pizza oven and have one or two extra guys making a few lunches, to me, I think it's it's a fun service to give right. to the neighborhood. That yeah, he doesn't have to be a gangbuster lunch every every weekday. But I also think gearing up for Friday, Saturday, Sunday lunches that are busy. It's hard to do if you're not open all. Sure, yeah. Every day is is more practice. Yeah, it's more practice, day. and you know, it's it's a good place for. We've been getting really good business lunches here. Um, you know, we're sandwiched between downtown and River Oaks. Right. There's a lot of people meeting here uh, with their clients to have a, a nice lunch that's 
you know, grilled fish and saute greens instead of a sandwich and a burger. Sure. So uh, I enjoy it. Uh, I actually enjoy lunch sometimes more than dinner just because it's a different vibe. It to me reminds me of kind of more how lunches are in uh, London or right. LA even. Like, you know, you get a, like I, I've been to Jelena, I can't count how many times and I've been maybe once for dinner. But you and Jelena is in? It's in uh, Venice. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it's, you go there for lunch and it's packed and it's just a cool feeling. There's nothing cooler to me than a fun lunch. Yeah, no, that's true. And um, don't worry, you have one uh, fun lunch customer in me because oh, I love I love <laughs> to throw it down at lunch. So, um, you know, I I want to talk. We've talked about a few different dishes that you have on the menu, but I want to talk about this famous roast chicken. Yep. So you did this at Barbudo, which of course is yep. famous there. If anyone's been to New York has dined there, they know that it's just sort of a timeless, just yeah. really elegant dish. So you do it here, yeah, and it's kind of your spin on it. So let's talk about so. It. You know, we didn't we didn't go crazy different. Originally, we weren't going to do it. I wasn't going to do it at all, just because you know it's it is at, at Barbudo. It's called the JW Chicken. Well, it doesn't say it on me, but that's what everybody calls it. The Jonathan Waxman Chicken, and he's he's been doing this dish since the times of the original jams, uh, which is kind of his iconic restaurant from the late seventies. And it was a you know a crispy skin chicken with sauce verde over French fries is how they used to do it. And uh, I wasn't going to do it. I was going to do something maybe similar but different. And again, he was down there. His son was going to rice for a lot. We were out drinking uh, somewhere, having a couple of margaritas, and he was like talking about the menu. What are you going to do? And he's like, What are you going to do the chicken? I was like, No, I don't think so. And he just looked at me and said, Why would you not? Yeah. He goes, How many chickens have you cooked? in your day for me. And I don't know, but I do know one year I worked oven every single day. We did 52,000 orders that year. So I- 52,000 <laughs> orders of chicken? Yeah, so oh my so God. to his point is like, you've roasted hundreds of thousands of chickens. Like, why would you not do something right. that's that? So I started reevaluating it and I thought it was, you know, a nice ode to Jonathan to sure. do uh, that. We, you know, we tweaked the sauce of a little bit. Uh, you know, at Barbuda, we did not roast it on lemon. It did way back in the day, actually. So we kind of brought that back. We roasted on a bed of lemons. Uh, we added a little, you know, we kind of tweaked the salsa verde to kind of fit my flavor profile. It's got a lot of cilantro in it in there, which I love. Um, and yeah, Texas bird instead of a New York, you know, state New York <laughs> bird. And does that make it different? It does. You know, you can, we could have brought the same bird down. <laughs> yeah. They sell it at Whole Foods now. But it's, you know, it, we tried before opening, I think it was eight different birds. Uh, everything from every bird that purveyors want to pedal to Amish birds to, uh, you name it, we tried it. And it that was, is some serious R&D. It was the exact same cook and, you know, one chef would cook it one day and then the other two chefs and the GM would eat it. And the next day, another chef, and they would have a little key, and we'd taste it, taste it, and there was one bird that just kept on showing up. And it was so, the Texas bird. It was the Texas wow. bird, Texarkana, and it was delicious. So, yeah, so we, we added it on the menu, and uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I'm happy we did it. Yeah. I think I think it was the right thing to do. For sure. I've had it. I, I Last time I was here, I was just telling 
telling Daniel here, um, I was here in March for my birthday and I wanted to yeah. try it because I didn't get to during COVID. So right. as soon as I was starting to dine out again, I had the roast chicken and it was so good. And then I always recommend it to people and I say, get the, the crispy potatoes with yeah. it, with that aioli. Yeah. You cannot not get yeah, that. Yeah, you get the aioli, you mix it. Sauce, it's delicious. Yeah, it's, it's delicious. And, you know, it's it's a hefty portion. It's kind of fun. And most I try to push it on everybody. I'm like, listen, worst case scenario, you take it home. It's delicious next day. It's quesadillas. It day. is, yeah. I, you know, if there's ever any leftover in the night, uh, I'll take one home about once a week. And wow. We yeah, I mean, it's like it's chicken. You can use it for literally anything. Yeah, and it's delicious yeah, chicken. So. so, you know, you are from here, of course, and you chose to come here for the support of the family and open this restaurant. But I'm sure you've seen so many people choose Houston for yeah. to open a restaurant whether or not they have connections here or not, or people are from here, they leave and then they come home again. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I, I think the obvious answers are things like, you know, it's overall a affluent city. Yeah, I think it's a diverse city, so it allows you to do what you want to do. I see Houstonians as pretty mature diners. Um, being that oil gas is such a, global industry and you know rather not everybody is oil and gas but a lot of them are auxiliary of some sort they traveled, <laughs> traveled to anywhere from london to north africa to south america to you know all these places across the world where their business has taken them and they've eaten everything so when you put something in front of them you know they don't mock at what it is they, right. they don't try to change it they accept it and they eat it, which I think is really cool. I, you know, when I was not to bash on Nashville, but when I lived in Nashville, that was the hardest hurdle we had. Mm -hmm. Every, you know, it was a meat potato right. town. Sure. There was tons of money there, but it didn't feel like it was necessary. They were as global eaters or as adventurous, at least at the beginning part of it. By the end of it, they were kind of. The food scene had taken over a little bit in Nashville. But it is also because Houston has been such a diverse city for so yeah. many decades now. I mean, such a melting pot. It's such a melting pot. And again, it's people dine out a lot here. Um, people cook a lot at home, but people dine out quite a bit here. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, besides, you know, dead middle of the summer or, you know, first week of school or spring break, there's just millions and millions of people that want to eat out all the time. So. Well, this is coming on your one-year anniversary yeah. now at Ostia. Well, congratulations, Thank you. especially yeah, September 25th. Such a interesting year to be celebrating yes. a one-year anniversary of this restaurant. But we are so happy to have you here in Houston. Yeah. I'm thrilled that you brought the chicken with you. <laughs> brought the chicken. And I wish you lots of more successful years. Thank you. I'm always so thrilled when Houston receives new talent, and I can honestly say that Ostia has really added to the city's culinary scene in a meaningful way. It can be difficult for restaurants to stand out when it comes to an excellent culinary program, great service, and most importantly, staying consistent in these things. But Chef Travis McShane manages to achieve this at Ostia, and with only one year of operating in Houston under its belt. I highly recommend a visit for dinner, or even a boozy lunch maybe soon, as Travis mentioned. 
Thank you for listening to Sip and Savor today. If you want to connect with me on social media and follow more of my Houston dining adventures, you can follow me at Hot Pink Houston on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And follow at Sip and Savor Podcast for photos of some of the dishes Travis and I talked about today. If you love this podcast and want to hear more, please do subscribe and look out for new episodes every Wednesday on the Eat, Drink, Dine Podcast Network. Until next time, sip and savor well. Thank you.